Well, good morning. If I haven't met you before, my name is Michael Rhodes. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, if you're new with us, maybe you were here supporting a family that was on stage, welcome. Uh, you came on a, a, maybe a difficult Sunday here because we're going to talk about God destroying the earth and tormenting unrighteous people. All right? So, uh, welcome to Veritas. <laughs> Um, you know, we, we've talked about this often in Revelation and it keeps coming up. So we want to be faithful to the text and keep talking about it as often as it comes up, even though sometimes we'd love to avoid it if we could, but we're just going to keep talking about it, right? So you do in this passage in chapter 15 and 16, what you're going to have this morning is God destroying the earth as we know it. And he's going to, um, Bring about agony on those who aren't believers. And it's heavy. There's some heavy stuff in here. Uh, If you remember recently, uh, I think the last time I preached, we talked about the trumpet judgments. And it was heavy. And somebody makes a teaching schedule that puts me on this, Jake Each, um, you know, that keeps bringing me, like, to the wrath passages, all right? I was joking with somebody the other day, like, they're going to change my title from pastor of staff and ministries to pastor of pain, right? And so, uh, dun-dun-dun, right? Uh, You have to say that every time, pastor of pain, dun-dun-dun. All right, anyway, enough of that. All right, that's all the laughing you get this morning. The rest of it's going to be hard. All right, Um, so you get God destroying the earth. You get him tormenting unbelievers. But at the same time, and what could be the most upsetting portion of the scripture is at the same time all this is occurring, you get angels and Christians worshiping Jesus. Like, how is it that Christians can be inspired to worship a God who incites wrath? Like, more importantly for you, like, how can you worship a God of wrath? If God is so great and glorious, but he brings out so much vengeance and judgment upon the earth and people who don't follow him, how in the world are we supposed to be people that worship him being that way? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. So uh, if you've got a Bible, go ahead, turn with me to chapter 15 of Revelation. Uh, If you're new with us, let me give you a little quick, quick summary of where we've been. So in Revelation, the Apostle John is getting this picture of the end, how things are going to come to an end. And in that picture, the picture of the end is supposed to help Christians endure today. All right. And it was written to seven churches back then. That was to really to look at the complete church, the universal church for all time. And it was written for our blessing and our endurance. So as God gives John this picture of the vision of what's to come is to motivate us to keep going on and keep pursuing Jesus today, even when it gets hard. Because if you remember in Revelation, these churches, the original audience, they were in the midst of tremendous persecution. They were being killed for their faith. And so the idea of like, yeah, I kind of want to give up because I don't want to go down that path is a real temptation. So God's trying to say, hey, wait, there's a picture. There's something better coming. And this, the picture that I'm going to show you is that your opposition is going to be taken care of by me. And in the midst of that, I'm going to take care of you and help you persevere to the end. So that's where Revelation has been going up until this point, all right? So it's written for our blessing, and I want you to remember that as we talk a lot about wrath and judgment this morning. 
Don't forget that this is for our blessing to continue and not give up, all right? Because there's going to be times this morning that you may go, I just want to quit. I don't want to hear more about wrath anymore, all right? So it's for a blessing. Just remember that. All right. So starting in chapter uh, 15, verse 5, we're going to read through 16.1 first. It says, after this, I looked. So this is John looking. And the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was open. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues clothed in pure bright white or bright linen with golden sashes around their chest. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So in chapter 15, verse 1, we didn't read it, but last week we were introduced to these seven angels and they had seven plagues. And then you see this chapter, verses 2 through 4, you kind of get this picture of worship, the new song of the redeemed that the the saints were singing last week, Jake talked about. And now picking up in verse 5, You have these seven angels, these seven plagues, and these seven angels are given these bowls, and these bowls are full of the wrath of God. And then this loud voice comes out and says, hey, I want you to pour these bowls of wrath out on the earth, all right? So then it says the wrath of God is going to be finished. Now, to help us understand this, I need to remind you that as we've walked through Revelation, what you've seen is uh, there's been three different sets of visions that John has gotten. He's gotten a set of visions about the seal judgments. There was a scroll that had seven seals, and every time one of those seals were peeled off, judgment happened. And then we talked about the trumpet judgments, and now we're talking about the bowl judgments. What I would believe here is you're not getting 21 different sequential uh, judgments, but what you're getting is a group of they're, they're one judgment. We're just getting those from different perspectives, all right? And over and over, because the same things are happening in almost all of them, you get to the end of them, the same thing happens each time. The seventh one is like, the seventh one ends. Oh, judgment's over. Actually, we're going to show you a different perspective of it, right? So in the first set of judgments, those sealed judgments, the perspective that we took If you think about the cameras at a football field, right, all those cameras, we zoomed in on how the church would go through those judgments, all right? So the church was going to suffer alongside the rest of the earth, and so the camera angle that we were looking at in those sealed judgments was zooming in onto our sidelines, like, oh, this is going to be hard. God's still sovereign over it all. You can keep going, all right? So you zoom in on our sidelines. In the trumpet judgments, you zoom in on the opposition sidelines because we thought they were hard, but wait till you see what they're going to experience. Those people who don't follow Jesus, it's going to be even harder for them. But if you remember in the trumpet judgments, God restrained his judgment, right? A one-third one of the earth was affected one third of the sea was affected you guys remember this maybe shake your head if you do some of you are like "Ah, that was a long time ago i don't remember what happened last week right so in this you've got god restraining his judgment and showing mercy throughout the process and so that when you're looking at suffering in the church and those judgments you're seeing like okay god's sovereign over this when you're looking at the trumpet judgments god's merciful in this this week what we're going to do is we're going to see these bold judgments 
from kind of the blimp perspective. This is from God's perspective. This is how he's seeing it all. So not just from the church's perspective, not just from the opposition's perspective, but now we're going to see from God's perspective. Now, how do we know this? So in verse 5, it says, After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was open. So this sanctuary of the tent of witness, or your translation may say the tabernacle of witness, refers back to the tabernacle. So the tabernacle was kind of the precursor to the temple when the uh, Israelites were enslaved in Egypt. And then God brings them out. They wander around in the wilderness for a long time. And God says, hey, while you're wandering around, I want you to set up a place where I'm going to be worshipped. And it's going to be called the tabernacle. And inside that tabernacle, the further you get into that tabernacle, there's going to be a sanctuary in the middle of that where my manifest presence is going to dwell. God dwells, God is everywhere, but he's going to manifest his presence in this sanctuary in the tent or the tabernacle of witness, all right? So this whole thing, this picture that we're getting, all these judgments are coming from that place, coming from this tabernacle. Now, in Exodus 25, this is how God kind of says it when he talks about the sanctuary and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst to show these Israelites, Hey, I'm going to dwell there exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture. So you shall make it. So again, God's manifest presence is there in this sanctuary. Now in verse eight, we find out it says, and the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God. The idea of smoke here symbolizes God's holiness. So what you need to know is that these bold judgments, the wrath of God is coming from a place where God dwells and because he's holy. Exodus 40 talks about this as well. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. There was something so distinct about God that Moses couldn't even enter that same place. He was so different. He was so holy. And we're going to talk about that often this morning. But there was something so different about God that people couldn't be in the same place. He was so set apart. And even here, like it says, no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. So these heavenly kind of priestly beings, they weren't even allowed in the same place. The angels weren't the same as God. We gotta, that's got to be our starting point, all right? Now, so then it says, the seven angels were given seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God. Now, if you remember, this goes back to the trumpets as well and goes back to chapter 6 even where the martyred saints, they're under the altar. These people who have been persecuted and died for their faith, they begin to pray. And what are they praying for? God, when are you going to send your vengeance? When are you going to send your vengeance on the people who killed us? And God begins to answer. This is how God's answering the prayers. I'm going to bring judgment upon them. You don't have to do that. I'm going to take care of you. You just keep enduring. I'm going to take care of the vengeance. And that's what we see in the trumpet judgments. That's what we see here as well in these bowl judgments. So the image of a cup or a bowl comes from the prophet Isaiah, where a cup or a bowl held the anger or the wrath of God. And it was to be poured out. And it was to be poured out on unholy people who break God's laws and persecute his people. 
So these judgments are coming from God, but there's a specific target to them. Who are they targeting? They're targeting unrighteous people and those who persecute God's people. God's not just throwing out his wrath on a whim. Like he's going, no, there's a target to my wrath. There's a target to my judgment. And it is unrighteous people and those that persecute God's people. So let's get really clear on what we mean by the wrath of God and the target being the unrighteous. In John chapter 3, many of you know John 3.16. Some of you may know John 3.17. This is what John 3, 18, 19, and then at the end of that chapter says. It says, whoever believes in him, Jesus, is not condemned. But whoever does believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Then verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So who is the wrath of God remaining on? Those that don't believe. Like it is very clear. Like Jesus teaching, John's writing here. Like The wrath of God is for those people who don't believe, and that leads to a lack of obedience. Now, the Apostle Paul says it this way in Romans 1. Verses 18 to 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So that goes along with John. That goes along with what we're reading here in Revelation. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So this wrath is is reserved for those who don't believe. It leads to a lack of repentance. And it says, and just so you know, you don't even have an excuse. Because God's revealed himself generally to you. In creation, you can look at a sunset. You can look at the ocean. You can look at a lot of things in creation and go, oh, there's got to be a God, right? Yeah, okay, but... All of you are sitting in this room this morning where we are singing about Jesus. We are opening up God's word. And it's not just a general re- revelation from creation. There is specific revelation where you all are hearing about Jesus this morning. And you do not have an excuse any longer. If you continue in your unrighteousness, the wrath of God is reserved for you. But it says... God's made himself known to you, but what did you do with that? Like, you suppressed it. You pushed it down. Like, "Ah, I don't really, I really like this sin more than I like God. I know God's there, but I don't really want to deal with God right now. I really prefer to pursue this instead. And we just keep pushing this down, this knowledge of God that's been revealed to us. We just keep shoving it down. It's like, "Ah, I don't really want to do this. I'd rather not. And says, the wrath of God is reserved for you. And then he continues in chapter 2, verse 5. And Paul says this, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Some of you think, oh, I like sin. And I seem to be getting away with it. And all you're doing is storing it up. And one day it's going to come out. And that's what we're reading about in Revelation. The wrath of God is coming. And you just keep like 
stacking up credits on your credit card, right? Oh, no, I don't have to. I don't, if I don't look at the statement, it doesn't matter, right? Like, they're not really there, right? Nobody's, nobody's catching me in my sin. Nobody knows what's in my heart. Nobody knows the things I think about that person or that person. And you're just stacking credits up. And you are storing up the wrath of God that is going to be revealed. So what we've got to know, even in the midst of this, is that God is slow to anger. Because you know when we all deserve to be punished for our sin and shown the wrath of God? As soon as we sin, as soon as we were born. But he was slow. And he's been slow for centuries and centuries. Slow to anger and pour out this wrath. But what we're seeing when the end is drawing near, this is what's going to happen. So God's cup of wrath is finally full and he's going, now it's time to pour it out on those people that don't have an excuse. So we see that there's a target, right, to this wrath and we see that it starts with God. Remember there was a voice from the temple in verse 1 of chapter 16 and I heard a loud voice from the temple, that's where God was, telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So this holy, glorious God is now summoning his judgment. And it's coming from the, this holy place. The reason I think that we struggle often with God's justice, God's judgment, God's wrath, is because we have a different starting point than what we have in Revelation. This is what I mean. When we think about God's wrath, we start with the people that we love rather than the God we love. And we go, how in the world could someone I love so much be punished like we're, we're, we're about to find out? I know my family isn't the best, but surely they don't deserve that kind of punishment. Surely they don't deserve that wrath. And what happens is we begin to go, oh, we value and fear and love people more than we value and fear and love God. And Ian just read it to the parents up here. Deuteronomy 6. We're not going to read it again. But this is what the Israelites would call the Shema. This was the thing that they were often saying. They were often quoting. They were often praying. This is what they were talking about all the time. What was it? Love the Lord your God with everything. And you talk about it all the time. You teach your kids about it. That's it. Like, you're going to love God so much because He's the ultimate. And Jesus said it this way in Matthew 22. Some of you remember this story. Somebody comes and they're trying to trick Jesus, right? Like, hey, Jesus, there's a lot of commandments. Tell us which one's the most important. And what does he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. I think the reason we have problem with the wrath of God is because we flip those two commandments. That we go... I love my neighbor. I love people really well. Surely God wouldn't do that to them. And you begin to think like, you forget how holy and glorious God is and go, why would he not do that? Because later on we're going to find out that these, this wrath was reserved to those marked by the beast. Now, when it comes to mark of the beast, we're not talking about like, a certain number and a microchip in your head and all those kind of things. We're talking about people 
who did not love God this way. Kind of the anti-Shema, right? Like, oh, you didn't value fear and love God above all else. I think that's what's happening is the reason we struggle with worshiping a God of wrath because we're seeing people as ultimate rather than God as ultimate. And we've gotten it backwards. We've flipped our priorities. And where God has practically taken second place, we go, how could he do that to people who I love the most? So then we go, God isn't fair. God can't be just. And it just creates these doubts and this bitterness and this anger. And we go, God's not doing a good job. I would do it differently. One pastor said, we do a terrible job at being God. We do a terrible job at being God. God doesn't do it the way we would do it because we're not God. We're not holy. We're not glorious. We're not awesome. We're not majestic and we're not wonderful, but God is. Now, I'm not saying that we have to make a choice between like loving God or loving people. That, like 1 John says something very different. Like, if you love God, that's going to overflow in how you love people. But if all you do is love, value, and fear people above God, you've changed what this life is about. And that's why God's wrath is hard. We've got to begin with the starting point that God is holy and God is glorious. So what does this wrath look like coming from a holy, glorious God? We're going to look at verses 2 through 4 of chapter 16 and then 8 through 11. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. Jump down to verse 8. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. Let's just let that sit for a second. That is the wrath and judgment coming from God. And it's painful and it's agonizing. And there's sores, seas turn to blood, there's death, there's fire, there's darkness, and there's just straight up agony. People are gnawing at their tongues. Like, you know what it feels like when you're eating. You just bite your tongue. You're like, ah, I don't ever want to do that ever again. And these people are going, this is so bad. I'm just, like, I'm in so much anguish. I'm just gnawing at my tongue. And there's this great connection to the Egyptian plagues. We've talked about this before, right? Where there's boils and there's hell and there's all these other things. And all those things were meant to do what? Point to the glory of God and say, this is how awesome God is. So this wrath and judgment is all pointing to how awesome God is and how can't be in the presence of sin. And so the first bowl is poured out and there's this, these sores, there's kind of this psychological and spiritual torment marked that's goes toward those that aren't marked by love, ultimate love for God. And then in verses, the second and third bowls, we get him destroying like 
the sea, kind of the maritime economy. And he's pouring it all out. It's not like the trumpets where he's restraining his judgment. He's pouring it all out. And then the fourth one, they're just miserable. Probably not being literally burned up, but that's what the vision that John has. And then the fifth bowl says, the wrath was poured out on Satan's throne. This is where rulers in this world promote idolatry and persecution. And they're going to be plunged into darkness and they're going to be separated from God, which is the worst thing ever, to be separated from your Creator. And they're going to be separated from their Creator, from a holy, glorious God forever. That's why it's the most painful, agonizing thing. And it gets worse, verses 12 through 16. The sixth angel poured out his bowl in the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and the mouth of the beast. Those are things we talked about in chapters 12 and 13. And out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of the God Almighty. And there's a quote from Matthew 24. It says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. This is Jesus. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Verse 16, And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. So the sixth bowl is poured out, and it's poured out on the great river Euphrates, which symbolized God's judgment on Babylon. Jake talked about Babylon a lot last week in chapter 14. What was Babylon? It represented the anti-kingdom of God. It represented a man-centered kingdom and not a God-centered kingdom. And remember what they were doing with this man-centered kingdom, the ways of this world. What were they doing? They were drinking it up, right? Drinking the Kool-Aid. Man, we love the ways of this world. Many of you are in that same boat drinking the same stuff. I love the ways of the world. I'd prefer not to be part of the kingdom of God. I really love the ways of the world, and it's really satisfying. And God says, I'm going to bring judgment upon that, and I'm going to dry it all up. And what you thought was going to satisfy you forever is going to be dried up, and you're going to realize, oh, man, I'm in a bad spot. I'm in a really bad spot. It's this ungodly worldview promoting an ungodly society is a good thing and they're just drinking it up and the wrath of God's going to be poured out and it's just going to dry it all up and when that happens it's going to set kind of three opponents of God and his people into motion the dragon and the beast again talked about in chapters 12 and 13 go back and listen to that sermon all right and then it talks about the false prophet there's going to be deception that enters the church, and you're going to, people are going to be deceived to worship idols even from within the, own, within the church. And they're going to be led by unclean spirits that for John look like frogs at this point, but they're demonic spirits behind this deception that's going to enter the church. And when this happens, this deception is going to start to assemble all these people leading man-centered kingdoms. All these political authority figures of this ungodly, worldly system, they're going to all come together. And they think they're all going to come together and they're going to just destroy all the saints. But it's a little bit like, ha, joke's on you because you're coming together and you're coming together and you're going to face the wrath of God one final time. You thought you were getting away with it, but you're not. 
And now we're going to talk about this final battle, this final war later as we get through Revelation. Let me just go through it real quick. So in verse 15, you have, again, Jesus being quoted. And he says, hey, behold, I'm coming like a thief. I'm going to return, is what Jesus is saying. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, so that he may not go about naked and be exposed. Now, what's he talking about? He's saying, as the end draws near, church, be alert be aware of this deception that's coming, okay? Don't start worshiping idols. You're going to be deceived to run after the ways of this world. Don't go there, but clothe yourself in righteousness. I wish we had time to go through Colossians 3. It'll be a great chapter for you to read this week about clothing yourself in righteousness. Stay alert. Stay awake. Don't give in to the idols. Don't be deceived. And the way that you do that is to clothe yourselves in righteousness because that way you're going to avoid the shame of being ex- exposed when the wrath and judgment of God comes. Okay? Then in verse 16, it says, And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Now some of you are like, oh yeah, we're talking about the battle of Armageddon now. I'm ready for this. Like I'm probably going to disappoint you, okay? Um, So the translation that we have here is actually Har, H-A-R, Megiddo, all right? It means the hill of Megiddo. I don't think this battle is going to be some crazy, crazy battle where everybody comes together and everybody's in one place to get destroyed. Because it's not this mountain, this battle, this huge on this mountain. It's talking about this plain. It had like a 70-foot hill, all right? We're talking about like Mount Trashmore here, all right? So like it's not something crazy, all right? This, this, I don't think he's talking about a geographical location where all this is going to come to the end at one moment, all right? Now, this plain was a place that Israel had won multiple battles. Over the years, this was a really important place for Israel, so in the, often in their minds signify like, oh, the end's going to come. Like, this is going to be the last battle, right? This is going to be the last battle. And he's going, you know what that means. You know, that when we reference that, we're talking about the last battle, all right? I think what this battle of Armageddon's talking about here is trying to symbolize that the world, the whole world is going to be defeated. And it's going to be defeated when Christ returns. It's over. It's over. It's this familiar place to these Jewish people who would say, all right, now Satan's going to be defeated, the beast is going to be defeated, the false prophet's going to be defeated, and those who are marked with the beast are going to be defeated. It's going to end. So in the midst of all this, the wrath of God coming down, how are different people responding here? In verses 9, 11, and 21, let's back up and see how unbelievers respond. In verse 9, it says, They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give Him glory. Then verse 11, And cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. And then verse 21, And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hell because the plague was so severe. So what did people who were not righteous, not holy, How did they respond? They curse the name of God. They curse God. They give Him no glory. They curse Him because of their pain. And they do not repent. How tragic. Like God's pouring out His judgment and you're going, Ah, I think I like it. He's trying to give you a picture like, No, it's not good. It's actually horrible. And you're just going to curse God in the midst of it. God, how could you do this? You had the power to stop it, but you didn't stop it. You let suffering keep going. 
Do you really love people, God? Isn't that a lot of our responses? When we see pain and suffering in this world? How do true believers respond? Verses 5 through 7. It says, And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say this, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, the altars, those believers, remember the martyred saints, they're all crying out. So believers, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The angel, the martyred saints, aren't upset by the wrath and judgment of God because it makes sense to them. Again, they prayed for this and God's just answering their prayers. I think there's a key term in verse 5. It says, just are you, O holy one. When we have talked about the wrath of God over and over in Revelation, we've talked about the wrath of God from God's sovereign perspective. We've talked about the wrath of God from the perspective of His mercy. Jake talked about the wrath of God in relationship to love. Today I want us to finish talking about the wrath of God in relation to His holiness. The wrath of God in relation to His holiness. Because His holiness is mentioned in chapter 1, 3, 4, 6, 9, 15, and 16 of Revelation. So it's a big deal because it's repeated. It's the only characteristic of God that's repeated back to back to back. Some of you remember the picture of the vision that Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, gets of the Lord seated on His throne. And it's this amazing picture. And the angels are all surrounded and they're singing this song. And what are they singing? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. And this cloud is there and it's His glory. It's, this, it's such a similar picture to Revelation here. He's holy. He's glorious. Nobody can enter His presence. And what is Isaiah's response? He falls on his face and he says, Woe is me. Woe is me. We know from the woes in Revelation refer to judgment. Judgments, bring it on me. I can't even be in God's presence. I can't do it. Because you're so holy and you're so glorious, God. Guys, I don't think that we often view God this way, though. Because when we understand the holiness of God, it makes the wrath of God so much more appropriate. Because God is distinct and He's separate. When I talk about the holiness, I'm talking about God's absolute moral purity. He's morally flawless. And because He's flawless, it separates Him from us. He's different. This is like the crowning characteristic of God, that He's holy, that He's set apart, that He's distinct. But see, oftentimes I think when we sin, we just think like, oh, I'm just sinning. It just affected my mind. It just affected my marriage. It just affected my kids. No, when you sin, it is an offense against a holy, righteous God. We've got to see that our sin is so much more than just an offense against somebody else. So why would God pour out his wrath on unrighteousness? Because he's holy. He's holy and glorious. He is set apart. Yet I think we've kind of 
made some edits to him and cropped him down to fit our image, to make God more relatable and more palatable, to be like us and to think like us. And he is not like us, church. We've kind of manicured Jesus into this nice, neat, gentle guy that likes kids. But he would never pour out wrath, right? All those things are true. He's kind. He's gentle. He loves children. And he's holy. And he's holy. Yes, we were made in God's image. But let's be really clear. God is not like us. He is glorious. We are not. He is awesome. We are not. He is majestic. We are not. He is holy. We are not. We struggle with justice and wrath of God because I think we make Jesus and we make God and shape him into our own image rather than seeing him in all his glory and all his holiness. But when we recognize holiness, wrath makes sense and worship makes sense. Guys, a proper response to God's wrath is shaped by a proper perspective of God's holiness. A proper response to God's wrath is shaped by a proper perspective of God's holiness. You cannot understand the wrath of God without understanding His holiness. But when we prioritize holiness, wrath makes sense and worship makes sense. It's the just right thing for Him to do to punish unrighteousness and unholiness. seventh bowl is eventually poured out in verses 17 through 21 we're not going to read it but it's poured out and in verse 17 it says it is done we can finally breathe a sigh of relief (sighs) the wrath of God is finished the wrath of God is finished it's over the lightning comes the rumblings the thunder the earthquake the hellstones it's all over When you think about God's wrath and the end of this world coming, what side of wrath are you going to be on? Are you going to be on the side that leads to your death? Or are you going to be on the side of wrath that led to Jesus' death? Because if you remember Jesus, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he dies. And he's praying and he's under so much pain and anguish because he knows what's about to come. And what is his prayer? God, if at all possible, take this what? This cup from me. The cup of what? The wrath of God. Please, please take it from me, God. I don't want to have to go through with this because it's going to be that bad. A God of wrath doing what he's supposed to do, pouring it out on unrighteousness that his perfect son takes on. And what does Jesus pray? God, but not my will, but yours be done. Jesus showing you and I how much he loves us. Oh, man. 
And then Jesus is hung on the cross. And the whole wrath of God is poured out on him. And what does Jesus say on the cross? It's finished. It's done. I have paid for their sins. Guys, we all deserve the wrath of God. And if you don't believe that Jesus took on all the sin, he took all the wrath, you will face the wrath yourself. But praise God, how amazing is his grace and how wonderful his mercy that he would pour it on Jesus instead. What side of wrath will you be on this morning? The one that leads to your death or the one that led to Jesus' death? This morning, my encouragement would be simply repent and worship. Church, I think there is a... I know there are people in this room, they were at 8 o'clock and will be at 11 o'clock, that our elders, that some of our staff, that our pastors, even some of your connection groups leaders have begged and pleaded with you to repent, to quit walking in darkness, and you keep walking toward wrath. Don't do it. God's wrath is real, and it is coming. Don't keep walking in darkness, church. Jesus is better. Jesus is a better way. Don't be like these people who curse God and blame God and they said, no, I'm not going to repent. But at the end when it's all over, it says, it doesn't even say anything about repentance because it was too late. By God's grace, it is not too late for you to turn today. Repent and turn to God in all his holiness and all his glory and you worship him for who he is. Amen. God, thank you. Thank you so much that you do punish sin and you poured out your wrath on your only son who you loved. Thank you, God. I pray for anybody in this room who keeps walking in darkness, God, through your spirit, melt their heart of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh today transform their lives forever. Please change our church. In Jesus' name, amen.